This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. And I'm Dr. Frank Lipman, New York Times bestseller and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. How have things been going for you, Frank? Uh, good. Um, all is good. I'm uh, enjoying this slower life. The stay-home life. Yeah. It's spend more time with the grandkid and uh, work a little bit less. It's, uh, it's good as we get older. Sleep a little bit more. You're sleeping a little bit more, I hope. Well, actually, my sleep hasn't really changed, but I do. it's nice to have a little bit more time for everything. I don't have to go into the city as much, which takes a lot of time. So things are, I can't really complain about the slower life. You don't miss those uh, train rides every day. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Staying amazingly busy. You know, lots of clients and uh, lots of telehealth yeah. meetings, yeah. lectures, articles. There seems to be no end of things to do. Yeah, no, I agree. I, and I like this telehealth, doing, you know, writing and, yeah, more inward time is great. I don't have any excuses for not doing things because I, I will be on a plane. You know, that was in the past, that was always my excuse. I, I can't work on it this weekend. I'll be in Seattle. Right. <laughs> All right, then. It's time to get into the main topic for this week, which is the microbiome, the all the myriad of invisible to the naked eye organisms that live on us and in us. So, uh, Frank, w- what do you have to say about the microbiome? How is that, that perspective impacting your practice? Well, I think I've got a lot to say because I'd say probably at least 80% of patients I see have either come in with symptomatic of a microbiome out of balance or come in with problems caused by a disrupted microbiome. So it's often the first place I start when I treat someone, you know, whether it's changing their diet, what supplements I use, what lifestyle changes I make. It's often focused on correcting some type of imbalance in the microbiome. And it seems over the years, you know, both of us have been practicing a long time. This seems to be have become more and more of an issue for more patients and starting at a younger age too. I'd say uh, almost all the young, let's say 30-year-old young woman that I see that come in with autoimmune problems or various problems, I'd say most of them have a microbiome imbalance, usually caused by overuse of antibiotics that our generation of doctors gave them when they were kids. So I think this microbiome issue is a huge issue for all of us, and not only for these young people. As as we get older, microbiome issues are a major factor in how well we age as well. So I'd say almost all the patients I see, I deal with the microbiome, and usually that's the first place I start. 
So how do you uh, come to that conclusion? Do you test first or do you, uh, is it based on what people are telling you, their history, the kind of problems that they're showing up with? And if it's that, as opposed to testing, what, what kind of problems tip you off? Right. So yes, it's usually the history and the type of problems that they're having. I mean, the testing I, I used to do in the early days and I stopped for a while and I've started doing it a little bit more now because the problems seem to be a bit more complicated. But what I do find, the testing often doesn't help much. What we, the results we get from the testing is sort of confirmation uh, of you know, what I think clinically that the microbiome is off, but it's often not that helpful in determining how to treat it. So often it's sort of a clinical assessment. So I'm not, you know, I think the tests are getting better and better, but at this stage, my, the history and clinical assessment seems to be much more helpful. Do you think your answer is tempered by the fact that you've just been at this for a while? I think so, probably, you know, because you see similar things over and over again. If someone comes in with digestive problems and they either have fatigue or they, they have skin issues, they have autoimmune problems, um, they have a history of antibiotic use and they have clinical symptoms of whether it's craving carbs or brain fog or a number of other issues related to a microbiome that's out of whack. Yes, I, I, I usually, it's probably just because I see it so often and I've seen it so much over the years that I just start treating them clinically. Now, you know, if, if someone's not getting better, then I, I usually go to a poop test. Yes. But, but you know, some people want to see, a, you know, the, the, their microbiome tested. So then I'll test them. But, I, you know, for the most part, I usually don't test them initially. I think it could go both ways. Um, as you said, some people want to know. I think for people that have inflammatory bowel disease, yep. like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, yep. it can be very, very helpful to pin things down. It's less clear if a person, say, has a mood disorder. You know, I've read a lot of that research uh, connecting what's going on in the gut with what's happening in the mind, and it seems pretty clear that imbalances in the gut bacteria can affect uh, neurotransmitter production, mood in general, energy level, etc. What's less clear is what it is that's specifically wrong. You know, when they, when they do animal studies, they can change the gut microbiome and then the animal's mood changes. Uh, you can't do that in, in people right. as much. So, you know, what we know is that there's there's a strong relationship between the what's happening in the gut and what's happening in the brain. Um, but, you know, when people then come to me and say, well, which bacteria is it? I can't, I, a lot of times I can't tell them, well, that means that you're low in this particular bacteria or you're high in something else. I can tell them that they've got an imbalance in those bacteria. Right. I mean, this is a problem with the testing as well. I mean, I think the results are interesting, but often not that helpful clinically. It doesn't really change what I do. Although sometimes um, it can determine which type of bacteria are deficient and you, you can often find a, a probiotic that has those certain types of strains in to replace you know, sometimes it'll come up with a pathogen that can be treated. Usually, you know, you obviously usually start with 
antimicrobial herbs before I go to drugs. Um, so I do think that tests can be helpful, but what I don't do is what I think, unfortunately, too many functional medicine doctors do automatically is just test the microbiome and treat the results as opposed to treating clinically because that, I think, can become a problem when you just start treating results. And, and that's sort of a general statement. When you treat the results and not the person, that can become a problem. That's just been my experience over the years. So I try to work things out clinically and, and use the testing as sort of a backup. Well, I would, I'd would i have two comments on that. One is that the new test, especially um, the metagenomics test, which is basically a test that measures everything in the sample. I don't know if the gut zoomer does that. I think that's a PCR test. Yes, and it not is. A, it's a PCR test. So yeah. what that means with the PCR test is that you are looking for certain bacteria, you're looking for viruses, so you only find what you're looking for. Right. As opposed to the metagenomics test like longevity does, what the longevity gut bio basically tests for everything. What that means is that the first few times you use it, there might be a lot more information coming in than you know what to do with. And an example of that is these tests are so sensitive that they can pick up very small amounts of a bug like uh, Clostridioides difficile. And when people hear C. diff, they think, oh, isn't that what you get after a course of antibiotics? And that gives you diarrhea and colitis and all kinds of bad problems. But some people can have a small amount of these quote, bad bacteria, and it doesn't cause a problem. Right. So when you say, boy, I, I see these, some of my fellow practitioners will get a test and they'll see clostridioides and they go, oh, this person needs to be treated. And I, I think I think that's a very good caveat because now these new tests, like the longevity test, is so, so sensitive that you've got to have a cutoff point. You've got to say, you know, below a certain amount, just having that bug, having Helicobacter pylori, uh, even having certain parasites, not necessarily a problem. Right. And, and here's a million-dollar question for you, since I know that you are from South Africa and you spent some time in the bush, you know, working with people there. Are parasites always bad? No, that's a great question, because especially in South Africa, my experience has been that so many people there actually had parasites and it wasn't a problem. It was just when we white boys went into the bush and got that same parasite that it became a problem. And we see that, you know, I've seen that over the years so often in New York City. It's, it actually happened to me going to, you know, the Dominican Republic, for instance. You come back with a parasite that most people probably have locally and because your microbiome is not used to it, it becomes a problem. So I think your point is well taken. It's, it's very complicated and you can't just go by these tests, and which is sort of what you, you know, I was trying to say in the beginning is, is my take that it's a little bit more complicated that you do this test and you see a bug and you treat the bug. It's more about how these bugs interrelate with the other bugs how you, you know symptomatically how you how the you the patient is doing so yeah i think that this is a complicated subject and i'm not convinced that the testing is that helpful you know i'm hoping for these tests to get better and better where we can really zoom in on what's going on and treat 
and just help us with a, with a treatment program. So you'd like something more specific than just the general category of prebiotics. It'd be helpful for you to know which prebiotic or... Yeah, well, not necessarily which prebiotic, more actually which antimicrobial, you know, which herbal antimicrobial could be helpful. And I know that's difficult. You know, if you do send a urine off for MCNS, it comes back and it's sensitive to those four antibiotics. I'm hoping we get to a, a stage... But I, I know it's not that simple because, as you just pointed out, with C. diff, you can grow C. diff, but it may not be enough, and it may be balanced with other bacteria that it doesn't become a problem. So, I know test. You know, the point is testing of the microbiome is so complicated, and and we just don't. We're not there yet in in terms of it being able to help us that much clinically. Let me ask you a kind of a follow-up question to that issue of the parasites that you would see in people that live out in the bush. Um, some of the articles that I've read suggested that people that do have those more diverse microbiome that are, you know, they have more parasites, they have less autoimmune disease and less allergy. Was that, is, is that your experience? Does your experience confirm what some of these papers have shown about the hygiene hypothesis that Look, I, I was there a long, long time ago, but yes, I worked in the bush and you you just didn't see when I was working in, in these hospitals in the bush um, and in the clinics in the bush, those just weren't the problems we saw in those days. You did, you know, people were not coming in with these problems that we're seeing today. So um, I can't say for sure, but it's probably part of the reason, yeah. I have to confess that uh, a number of years ago, I had a patient with ulcerative colitis. I'm, I'm still treating him, and he's he's good now. He's stable. But back then, we were having a hard time getting his symptoms under control. And we read about a pharmaceutical company in Thailand that was selling eggs from a, a kind of worm. Yes. And so I I had him order. He ordered the eggs for the worm, and he took it for about six months, and he went into complete remission, complete remission. All of his symptoms went away off all medication, yep. minimal supplements, no probiotics. I mean, he was fine. He was normal. Yeah, I've, I've heard a couple of stories like that. You know, in fact, I was turned on to that by one of my patients who did it. You know, talking about ulcerative colitis, what I have seen a lot with ulcerative colitis, we used to, you know, he stopped during COVID, have this, um, old little old man, Doctor Cahill in New York, yes. New York yeah, City. Yeah, heard of him. Um, yeah. Who used to who used to do a rectal swab on yes. patients we sent, and almost all the ulcerative. And I've spoken to him often about this. Almost all the ulcerative colitis patients that I sent to him, you know, he did pick up parasites a lot, but almost all of the ulcerative colitis patients I sent did have a parasite, and we gave them antiparasitics, and a lot of them got better. And his whole shtick was that ulcerative colitis is triggered by a parasite huh so we don't know which one though well, i mean he used to always come up with giardia and and amoeba but you know after a while it also got you know i always think it's a little bit more complicated but um it was usually giardia or amoeba but he always used to say that a stool test is notoriously inaccurate 
to pick up parasites. It's like doing, if you, if you want to do a culture of a, a strep culture, you don't take sputum and because you won't see the strep. And he felt that was the same thing. That it was very difficult to pick up parasites in a regular poop test. You've got to do a rectal swab. My feeling now is I'm using these mixed antimicrobials for so many people because I don't think it's as simple as there's one parasite causing it or you just have yeast. You know, so many people are coming in with these SIBO symptoms and, you know, SIBO is a pretty easy test to do and you can pick up SIBO quite easily with a breath test. So I use the herbs for SIBO, but I often think SIBO is, is not necessarily the cause, but often a symptom of some other underlying yeast, bacteria, parasite thing. So, uh, you know, I just think this whole microbiome story is fascinating, um, but almost always I do use these antimicrobials first and not, and, and not probiotics. Often, especially with SIBO, you give them probiotics, they get worse first. Sometimes I'm starting to use more of these spore-based probiotics, which don't seem to make things worse, but I don't start with probiotics anymore like I did in the old days. So you use uh, you like bacillus coagulans, exactly, that, which used to be called sporogenes, but yes, um, yeah. Suddenly, uh, I'm hearing everyone talking about these spore-based probiotics, and I think well, Thorne has been selling bacillus coagulans for what 25 years. Oh, I didn't right? see. I didn't even know that. Yeah, they've been at it for 25 years, and so they kind of been quiet about selling it. Oh, this is a good probiotic; you should try it. And then this other company comes along whose name I will not mention. Suddenly they're promoting spore formers as if this is a brand new thing on the market. This is not new at all. This has been around for decades. Interesting. Right. So I've, I've, I use, if I start, especially if I think someone has SIBO, I, I, I never use probiotics first anyway. After, after a while, I'll use probiotics because I see it often get worse. But the spore-based probiotics don't seem to make it worse. Do they help? I'm not sure about that, but they don't make it worse like some of the other probiotics often do. So share your, share some of your clinical experience. Yeah, I, I think what we call SIBO, which may be better called SIMO, instead of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, maybe we should call it small intestinal microbial yes, overgrowth. Yeah, because you get CIFO, exactly. Yeah, yep. you got CIFO with yep. fungi. Yep. And and God knows what's happening with viruses in exactly. there. I mean, you know, I I was uh, reading some of the literature. You know, this Thorn now has this new prebiotic effusio from from effusio that's a you know bacteriophage. And I, so I was reading some of the review articles on bacteriophages, and they were saying if there are forty trillion bacteria in the gut. There's maybe five to ten times that many right. bacteria. And so, I mean, I'm sorry, bacteriophages. I meant viruses. Yeah. yeah. So the bacteriophages that live off those bacteria, we don't know what they're doing in the small intestine, and we don't know what kind of role they're playing. But I'm certainly seeing this, this idea of using bacteriophages is a really yeah. uh, strong possibility for people with the SEMO, you know, with, with the bloating after meals. I've had several people just in the last two weeks that I've recommended the bacteriophages to and fingers crossed that it will help. And, the, you know, these are often people that say they take probiotics and they get worse. Yeah. So, the, you know, the idea of a prebiotic uh, that's very gentle, like the, 
the one from a few thorn effusio which is pomegranate green tea uh and bacteriophages makes a lot of sense yeah it does make a lot of sense i got it i do i love the idea i also need to start using effusio more we know what those bacteriophages do is they attack a certain kind of bacteria that causes a lot of problems in the microbiome it's called e coli um, e coli is ubiquitous and they're not all bad but if you've got too many e coli it can cause problems and so the idea behind the bacteriophage is to to rebalance the gut and that's really the problem that a lot of these people have is an imbalanced gut microbiome you know it's not as much the old days where we'd say you've got overgrowth of this one bug right. and we need to go after that bug instead it's the imbalance what we call dysbiosis exactly and that's why i think a, a, a product like effusio is a future where you're actually giving prebiotics and probiophages together rather than guessing with this probiotic which as you know literally a crapshoot so um I, <laughs> I do like this idea i've got to say Okay, now we've got to take a short break, and when we get back, we'll take some questions from our listeners. The foundation for every good health routine starts with a multivitamin mineral formula. But what multi-formula is right for your unique body and lifestyle needs? The team at Thorne has made it simple for you to find out. Just head over to thorn.com to take a multivitamin quiz. Simply answer a few questions about your diet and lifestyle, and their medical experts will recommend an ideal multivitamin mineral formula. Treat your body to the health that it deserves with Thorne's foundational health solutions. Learn more by visiting thorn.com. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from our community. The first question this week comes from a listener who asked, what would happen if we didn't have a microbiome? Well, that's actually a great question. And well, first of all, we have, micro, we have many different microbiomes. We have a gut microbiome, we have a mouth microbiome, we have microbiomes in our lungs, in our armpits. Microbiome, you know, that we have more bacteria in our bodies than we have cells. So um, we wouldn't be alive without these microbiomes. They're part of who we are. So I don't know. I, I don't think we would be existing if we didn't have all these different microbiomes existing all over our body. We've just never understood the microbiome, so it doesn't sort of fit into you know, our training in, in medicine. But uh, my guess is... We, we wouldn't be uh, functioning properly without these microbiomes. You know, all the different microbiomes play such an important role in, in the different organs, in, in particular the gut microbiome, which we're talking about. You know, we wouldn't be making certain hormones, certain vitamins. We wouldn't be digesting properly. So what would happen? I don't know if we'd be alive without our microbiomes. Is that going too far? What do you say, Bob? Well... Um, there are animal studies where they raise rats, laboratory rats, without a microbiome, and they do run into all kinds of problems. And I think the main problem is with the immune system. Right. Because 
the we rely on the microbes in our gut to basically mentor our immune cells, you know, to, to interact with our immune cells and teach us tolerance. Right. If we don't learn that tolerance, if you don't have something like that going on in the first year of life, as soon as you start eating food, you're going to be reacting to that food. So I, I think, you know, your implication that if we didn't have that microbiome, we it's not compatible with life. It, it might not be that we die right away, but we right. could potentially develop all kinds of immune disorders and nutritional disorders because the gut microbiome makes nutrients. Right, which gets to the next question um, being asked is why do we focus on the gut microbiome more than other microbiomes? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, that's where the biggest concentration of bacteria are. You know, to some extent, it's like the the old saying that you're looking for the keys right. under the street light because right. that's where the light is. Right. Um, and we do have a, it's easier to test the gut microbiome, but it's not just that uh, oversimplified version. You know, the, the hugest proportion of uh, and concentration of bacteria, fungi, et cetera, is in the, the distal, the lower part of the colon. Yeah. So, you know, by the time, in fact, I think by the time you get to the, the very end of the colon, the rectosigmoid area, you know, there's more bacteria in a thimble full of stool than there are stars in the known universe, right? So we're talking about huge concentrations of bacteria and, you know, probably the greatest concentration anywhere in the body. Now, that's not to say that what's going on in the lungs isn't important, the skin, the mouth, you know, and we can measure that. There's a, you know, there's a company called Oral DNA that, uh, allows you to measure the the mouth microbiome, the oral microbiome, and uh, I know a lot of dentists that find that test very helpful for periodontal disease. Yeah, that makes sense, and I think the skin microbiome is obviously huge as well, and I think that's going to be the next frontier for for treating a lot of chronic skin problems. And you know, we haven't really got into treating the skin microbiome, but I would imagine that the way we live our lives today with the soaps and everything to, to clean us, you know, to wash our skins, we're probably cleaning off a, a whole layer of microbiome that probably is, is playing an important role in, in, in many factors in our health as well. I would imagine if you, if you measured the skin microbiome of someone in the Amazon and uh, one of us, you'd probably come up with much fewer bugs on on our skin microbiome than you would in a someone from the amazon mm -hmm. absolutely so next question is are probiotic supplements effective or are probiotic foods better well my experience has been probiotics are, are literally a crapshoot they'll help one person they won't help the next person and they'll actually make the third person worse so probiotics are are, are tricky Probiotic foods are actually a little bit better, but still sometimes probiotic foods can, well, the worst thing that happens, they give people gas. But, you know, as we said earlier, I think the future is going to be giving prebiotics with probiophages. That, to me, makes the most sense um, intellectually. You know, I don't, I don't really have the experience yet, but my experience with probiotic supplements I used to be a huge believer and give everyone probiotics, but over time I realized that it can go any of those three ways. So um, I'm, I like the idea of 
prebiotics with probiophages for the future? So I would agree. I, I think probiotic foods for people that can tolerate them are a, are a great idea. You know, things like kombucha and sauerkraut, fermented foods, etc. They're great for people that can tolerate them. But the, the amount of live bacteria that are in those foods are not that high. You know, so you have to eat a lot of them, big servings of them multiple times a day. My friend, Dr. Walls, who's the, the doc who cured herself from MS with food, you know, she is really big on eating just huge quantities of these fermented uh, vegetables. And I, I think it's not, how can you go wrong with that, right? Right. But then if a person is on antibiotics, then I think you can make a pretty good case for taking something like Saccharomyces boulardii. Definitely. You know, SAC-B. Yep. I put everyone. I put everyone who takes an antibiotic on Sac B, not other probiotics, but uh, Sac B. You know, which is, you know, what we know can prevent the C diff we talked about earlier, which is not an uncommon um, consequence of taking antibiotics, especially yep. in long term. But yep. but I think what what we do need to talk about is, you know, it's it's also about not eating or, or, or if you want to improve your microbiome, it's not necessarily only about probiotics. It's about avoiding certain foods, avoiding the sugars, avoiding foods that, you know, have been injected, you know, let's say animal products that have been injected with antibiotics, avoiding too many pesticides and, and chemicals on foods that can all affect your microbiome and even, you know, chlorine in, in water, you know, most, you know, municipal water systems have chlorine, which I understand why it's in there, but, you know, that can affect your microbiome too. So I think you've got to be aware of all the factors in food and water that can affect your microbiome negatively too, or avoiding those things can actually improve your microbiome. I have to wonder, um, since I, I swim laps at my club twice a week, and I, I, I do have to wonder what effect that has on the microbiome. You know, they, they use chlorine or yep. bromine or something in the water. And so I don't know. I'm not giving up my swimming, though. No, well, you, life <laughs> is about a balance. But I would imagine it's affecting your skin microbiome. Yeah, yep, somehow. Yep. Somehow. Well, the last question is, does our microbiome eat us after we die? Does our microbiome live after us? That's a great question. It's a great, great question. And I don't even know how to answer that. Uh, <laughs> how about it? Well, it obviously would die. With, I mean, no, I don't know. Actually, I, yeah, the, my first thought was, well, we're not feeding it, you know, because we, when I think of eating food, it's not only we're feeding us, we're feeding the bugs in our gut too. Um, we're not feeding it, does it die? I mean, that's actually, or does it just start living off? Yeah, I don't, that's a great, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't imagine that, you know, unless the person has been preserved in formaldehyde, that those bugs are going to die immediately. They're going to, they're going to, you know, hang out as long as there's something to eat. You know, I would imagine the healthier ones are going to die the, the soonest. And what's going to be left is the putrefactive bacteria, exactly. the bad ones. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think that's what the smell of corpses is from. Uh, that is, a, yeah, exactly. That is what it's from. Yep. So I think our microbiome, it, I think it's true that it does eat us to some extent. I think that's, a, I think they're onto something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much for listening. 
Uh, and thank you, Frank, for once again engaging in some really fun dialogue. And thank you. Till next time. Till next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Research. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.